two little mice fell in a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he turned that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse. It's amazing. He's talking about motorcycle insurance. Now let's start the show. Step back on the cold. Problems. Mm. Tell us the fuck. Ladies and gentlemen, the CO double MON synonym for fresh truth is the emblem. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Second Mouse Podcast. This week, we are going to talk about a relatively heavy topic, um, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, Request for all of the folks out there. We are currently on Instagram, YouTube, and all the social media platforms. Do us a favor and give us a follow at Second Mouse Podcast on Instagram. You can also find us on YouTube by the same name. We are streaming on all of the platforms, most notably um, the Apple platform for podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a like, give us a follow, give us five stars and tell your friends really trying to grow our listener base and engage with you all. So if you have particular topics or things you want us to talk about, please give us a shout and DM us through Instagram and we will respond and we will have that conversation in the next episode. And you know what? Even if you don't like it, just give us five stars anyway. Don't be an asshole. Yeah. It's a rough time for everybody. Yeah. Seriously. We're not asking for much. Download the episode. You don't have to listen to it. Just download it. That's all I care about. Use your old use your old cell phone and just have it playing in the closet for the next 12 hours. That'd be great. Yeah. Cool. All right. So guys, what we're going to be talking about today is a little bit of a heavy topic. And what I want to do first is preface that we are recording this early in the week. And normally our episodes drop at the end of the week, normally late Thursday, early Friday morning. So By the time you hear this, it might be out of date, and therefore we apologize if anything has shifted, anything dramatic. Who knows? This whole situation could all be over in three days. But what we're going to talk about is the the military action, the military invasion of the Ukraine by the Russian Federation. We have a, a timeline that we'd like to walk through and just give you the full context, but also our perspectives. Gatto. From somebody who's lived in Europe for a number of years, talk to us about what your experience was living in Europe and what do you think the European response has been to this entire situation? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to any of my friends uh, back there, but before I had left the Netherlands, everything was amicable regarding the relations between countries amongst countries. Um, and in fact, I, I feel like the attitude towards Russian people might have been uh, a little bit better than um, towards Americans. At the time, it seemed they were very much a part of Europe and were treated as such. And what's going on, this conflict that's currently happening, I don't think that this is a favorable conflict amongst the general population of Russia. Hope that people understand that like this is not coming directly from like 
the the Russian people. It's coming from one man in particular. Tom, did I answer your question? I don't even know where you did. I yeah, and I and I, <laughs> I think you brought up a really good point that normally with dictatorships, it's not the will of the people, but it's the will of one man. And as um, for those who have been following the news, Vladimir Putin is the president of the Russian Federation, but also the one who has pushed this narrative that parts of Ukraine or Ukraine as an entire country are illegitimate states and they are they need to be reclaimed by the Russian Federation because there are individuals who live in Ukraine who are currently being persecuted by the Ukrainian government. Um, there's also a comment that was made by the Russian Federation that the Ukrainian government is letting um, neo-Nazis and white nationalists. They're claiming genocide against um, Russian-born residents of Ukraine. And there's also a separatist movement that's in occurring in eastern Ukraine, the Bombas region, where it has been hotly contended for a number of years. And up until, what was it, last Thursday, this had been a, a simmering, unkinetic conflict between Ukraine, the Western powers, and Russia. And then on Thursday, Vladimir Putin launched an invasion into Ukraine. And as we sit here early in the week, um, Kiev or Kiev is currently in the process of being surrounded by the Russian army. There's supposedly a 40 mile long convoy of military vehicles that are from the Russian army that are currently being held up because of logistics and gas shortages, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Um, seems like the Russians only packed for three days and they're staying for a long weekend. I'm wondering if we should narrow scope and um, because there's nothing, there's no commentary that we can provide that's going to be unique to what's been out in the news. I'm wondering if we narrow our scope to motivation and the why behind the, the pull and tug from both the Russian Federation, the EU, NATO, and US, and like, where's Putin's motivation in all of this? Because ultimately, I all think right. that's a far more compelling narrative than talking about like the siege of Kiev or Kiev and like going through the timeline. Because frankly, if we do that, we could be here for hours because there's so much fucking context around this, right? Like, this has been a hotly contested part of the world for 200 years. I think it would be best for us to narrow our scope to talk more about like intentions and motivations of all the warring parties right now. And I use that term loosely because whether it's a connect conflict or we're aiding in some way, shape or form, it is, they, these are warring powers. So I want to start with motivations related to Vladimir Putin, um, his motivations, his goals, and and how does this kind of impact his legacy and the history of Russia as a whole? It's wild. I think, you know, at least the last day or so, people have begun saying Putin is ill. Putin is mentally unwell. Um, Putin's lost his mind. And I don't necessarily believe into that. I think a bigger part of it is his psychological 
makeup at this point is that can can I be honest? This might sound ridiculous, but he's the single most powerful person in the world, right? I could argue, yeah. That's I, I, you could. There's an argument yeah. to be made for that. Because some you, people have argued say, that he's the richest person on earth, and because we don't know his true net worth. I mean, he has a lot of soft is- influence too, right? Like soft influence, as in like financial influence and things like that, but also. Being the leader of a country that has 11 time zones and it kind of has its advantages in terms of like, you know, the puncher's weight. But Gato, I'll let you continue. I'm sorry for interrupting. Psychologically, I wonder if being the possible most powerful person on in, in modern history or at this time um, and, and also having been ruler of Russia for now what uh 20 years 20 22 22 years something like yeah 22 years um and and the way that the Russian government does operate um how Russian media operates when Putin says something is it just is in his country and I wonder if a part of why he felt the need to invade Ukraine stems from a belief that whatever he says is the actual absolute truth. And there's a bit of megalomania um, plaguing him in his decisions because he truly believes that whatever he says is actually going to be the case. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's enough information out there to to really highlight that he's been able to get away with a lot of things for the last couple of years, right? Like the occupation of Georgia, his involvement in Syria, the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. He's gone unchecked a number of times. And I know that we were communicating about this in our, in our discord channel, but I have to wonder if there is a component of edge theory to this where he is pushing the boundaries to see how far he could go until somebody responds. And, you know, I just listed off a number of experiences or a number of engagements that he's been involved with, or the Russian government or the Russian army has been involved with that nobody has been willing to counter uh, from a military standpoint, or no one's had the capacity to do so. He's also made a lot of friends with the people that the United States and the West does not like. And if you look at some of the partnerships that they have with some of the other petro states, um, he's cozied up very much with a number of those countries that don't have a ton of influence, but around him that they do. And I want to give credit to a podcast called the Breaking Points podcast, because they were talking about this last week. And there was a really, really interesting comment that one of the hosts shared was that this is not this is not Adolf Hitler annexing like the Sudetenland or reclaiming Czechoslovakia or anything like that this is very much a play back to old time Roman Empire behavior where they are trying to once again to establish the the, the Russian Empire um and create this this large country that's 
um, ruled by one person or one entity. And Ukraine for a very long time was a part of the Russian empire. And to say that this was a peaceful part of the world is not necessarily true because for from about 1800 to about 1955, all the way up until the Cold War, it knew a lot of conflict. And we're talking about the Russian pogroms, we're talking about the Holocaust, we're talking about the purges. Um, you have two of the largest death and work camps in the Ukraine, in Treblinka and Sorbobor, where 850,000 Jews were liquidated. Um, but also to the, um, the relationship that Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler had pre-World War II, where they basically split Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, and Poland down the middle and said, we're just going to starve everybody out who's in the middle. Um, it's a very interesting part of the world that has experienced a lot of sadness. And this is Vladimir Putin showing his power and showing his ability to just take what he wants. But fortunately, the world has responded in a way that I don't think he expected. Yeah, I, I, Tom, you made a great you made a great point about edge theory because I I used to always make the uh, the metaphor that he was like before you go into a pool you dip your foot into the water to test the temperature. Mm -hmm. It's basically what he's been doing. That when he invaded Georgia a bunch of years ago, that's exactly what it felt like he was doing. Just enough. He he went in there just enough to pretty much get a reaction, kind of gauge how people uh, were responding. Obviously, it was widespread condemnation, but. There was no real um, effect other than sanctions, which have been pretty much the norm. It's pretty much just to hit them economically. And I mean, you know, for him, uh, again, we don't really know how rich Vladimir Putin is. So we don't know how hard these sanctions are actually hurting him. Uh, we're seeing more economic sanctions with the uh, SWIFT movement uh, that's gone on recently. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's clearly, he is doing everything in his power to keep Ukraine out of NATO. And I think he made a really, uh, mis, mis a really big misjudgment on doing that because I get it. He didn't want Ukraine joining NATO and pretty much getting, you know, the allies in his backyard. But I honestly, I felt like there was a good shot. He was going to, he was going to do it, but I, I, I guess until you see it happen, you really can't believe it. Um, because at this point, like what is his end game at this point? Because now Ukraine, it's where we're in day five at this point. It's day five or day six. I think it's day um, six. Day six. Day six. Yeah. So we're in day six of this at this point. And I would say Ukraine has done a really good job at, at holding them off. Unfortunately, um, they are taking a brutal beating and, and, and at this point, and it's 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 horrible to see what's going on there. Um, but I, you have to wonder at this point, what is his, what is what is the next move for him? He feel, I think he's boxed in at this point. Do you feel like he even has a next step? I would argue that he he didn't expect he needed that many steps. I I think he truly believed i mean you have to realize the capital of ukraine is what 40 kilometers from the russian border i mean that's that's nothing you know um it is weird to me to think that he wouldn't have because he seems like he's someone that's always got a plan or an agenda 
And someone like that is typically thinking of next steps all the time. Um, but I think that might have been why he tried to raise the bar with the whole putting his country on nuclear alert and then demanding to have a uh, a discussion with Ukrainian leadership, right? Um, that fell apart. That didn't, you know, which, I, I mean, obviously those are weird because in past Russian discussions like this, they often ask for weird things like um, they'll say, oh, you have to get rid of all your Bulgarian uh, missiles or something, you know, and it's like they don't have any Bulgarian missiles. It's It's a complex issue right now in the sense that there's a lot of moving parts, and I think a, a, a big complicating factor is the involvement of Belarus in this as well, which is basically serves as a Russian client state at this point. And, that, and that's ultimately, I think, what his goal is, is to yeah. remove yeah. the Zelensky administration and the current form of government and create another client state, which... It creates a modern day Eastern Bloc, very similar to the Warsaw, um, the Warsaw Agreement, which created this um, idea that if if one group is attacked of Soviet states or Soviet satellite states, they'll all fight back. But ultimately, like y'all are controlled from Moscow. Let's be real. Um, <laughs> and you the know, new Iron Curtain. Mark Hurtling has a really interesting thread on Twitter and I was trying to find it, but I, I can't at the moment where he talks about, um, and I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize, but the difference between force will and force resource and Russia is force resource where they are well supplied and they have lots of troops um, and force will is the Ukrainian people who are fighting because their land is being taken from them because they have been invaded by a foreign army and they are having to defend their homeland. Now, the difference, though, with Russia comparative to like, let's say, the United States invading Afghanistan is that Russia is a one year conscript army, which means you have to do your one year of service and then you're out. But this is also an army that has been historically undersupplied and it's built for a smash and grab operation and not necessarily a prolonged conflict where logistics and supplies are key in order to keep your army operating. And we're clearly seeing that now where apparently that 40 mile convoy of Russian troops and armor and artillery has stopped because they've ran out of gas like shit. There's not a sick go on the way. Um, but this is, unfortunately, this is, fortunately, this is something that, um, only allows Ukraine to be more and more prepared and get those supplies that are being promised by some of those other NATO and EU countries. And ultimately I, it's hard to fight a war where your army is only half in it. And they don't necessarily understand why they're there. There was a New York Times article that said that their Russian troops are just abandoning their vehicles and just like walking away from them because they're either out of fuel or they don't understand why they're there. So I think that's another thread to pull on as well is like, what's the motivation of their army and their and their general um, soldiery? Are they into this as well? Yeah, yeah. It, it honestly, like, and I, I think for this to end there has to be some kind of huge moment. I, I don't know what that's going to be. 
Um, because we were talking about the negotiations yesterday, and honestly, I don't know how you can negotiate uh, without a ceasefire. And like, I mean, even showing up there without like offering any type of like, we'll stand down for a moment while we do these these conversations. And he he would oh, doesn't seem like that was even on the. Yeah, well, you would think that would be the, a precursor to some kind of negotiation, but it didn't seem like Putin was even interested in doing that. Um, so, you know, I think. I, oh, I was just going to say that's that's a that's like classic Russian textbook, though, you know, um, apply the pressure while having the discussion, you know. Um, yeah, we're just going to keep shelling like that was Harkev. Harkev that Harkev, well, that's the thing. Well, because that's the, he's already he's already yeah, they've already they've already been bombing them, you know, and doing all this stuff for for days. It's like you've you've already made your point clear. Like we we you know if you if you actually want to enter in true, uh, good faith negotiations, uh, this is this is the time to to stop at least momentarily. Um, but I mean, some I I I I don't I don't know what his true motivation is because I don't think anybody except for him knows. I think the the most logical one is the guys what you the guys have been talking about. Um. You, you mentioned the idea of that Putin is sick. We've been seeing that a lot from U.S. politicians. Five eight Marco Rubio, by the way. <laughs> little little Marco, <laughs> little little bitty Marco. Trust me, there's not a problem. Um, which is which is interesting because and like I saw one person shared a picture of him sitting at a desk, a table that he's really far away from his guests. They're like trying to put out the idea that he's really sick and it's like i don't i don't see i don't see how that sharpens his uh motivation uh for going into ukraine I, i've never understood that theory and and also too i think this is a different time than when annexations or police actions took place in different parts of the world where now social media people are able to broadcast what's happening in real time right so it's hard to create a narrative of you are just trying to protect your Russian residents of Ukraine or you're trying to help when there's a video on a number of channels and a number of streaming platforms where you are just shooting cruise missiles at apartment buildings. And I think the longer this goes, the harder it's going to be to keep up the narrative that they are there to help when you are basically encircling an entire city and creating and laying siege to it i to me that that excuse for invasion never held water and it never would have anyway but the fact that they tried to use that and say like oh we're here to help we're also going to be attacking you with su-25 like air to ground jets doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me and it's no um you were on the right track. I was I was going to um, kind of jump on what you were saying, and you know, I think the Rus like the Russians could just come in by air and just annihilate and decimate the whole place, and they haven't done that because I think they see at least ownership of Ukraine as being advantageous. It's it's an area that they could really use and i i often wonder if for putin one of the motivations actually might be that he has a stagnating or declining economy and he's well aware of it more so than the rest of the world and 
something like this would be a boom because uh, Ukraine, as it was beginning to develop and become more democratic, um, the economy was starting to boom significantly too. And I wonder how much he saw that as just it's it's just a money play. Um, I'm sorry, I might have gone a little off topic there, but I just wanted to jump on what you were saying. No, I mean, I think that, you know, particularly with with countries that kind of can see the end of where their their reach is, they start to look on the other side of the fence. And Ukraine, as this up and coming Eastern European country that provided the world with a high percentage of grain and wheat, those are the things that have always been trouble for you know, the Russian Empire, to the Soviet Union, to the Russian Federation, they've always struggled to find adequate supply of raw materials and foodstuffs. And while I don't think his intention was let's go for the land grab because of the natural resources, I do think it was a bonus for them to do that. It was an added benefit. Um, going back to the point about... Um, Russia utilizing the Russian military using air power. One of the, the things that I've been hearing and reading is just the reason why they are struggling right now is because they have just failed to create air superiority, which is like rule number one in military doctrine in the modern age. Like you have to be able to dominate the sky and you're the only planes flying. But from my understanding, they have failed to do that and whether it's air-to-air -air combat or surface-to-air missiles that the Ukrainian army or Ukrainian resistance is utilizing, they just haven't been able to do that. And that has slowed down their progress. And it's kind of put them where they are now, where they have to create these land operations where large armies are also hungry armies and they need a lot of resources. And this is kind of where they are at this point. Yeah, and uh, honestly, I I don't think you can say you're here to help by by doing what he's doing. No. Like you know, <laughs> hey, I'm here to help uh, take care of a problem for you. I'm going to destroy and kill civilians. Um, but yeah, I I also took it as that he hasn't. Like Tom, you make a great point uh, that he, he they may not have the necessary capabilities. But also, if they do, I think he he views it in his head. I think he's seeing a potential acquisition for them and he doesn't want to destroy the infrastructure um yeah but he isn't that, that's how sick of a mindset it is though that he's willing to preserve the architecture but kill civilians it's it just it just really so it's a scary it, mindset but again it's you know it's good it it's very worrisome in the fact that he thinks about the infrastructure probably more than the people because of how little yeah. he's actually regarding for the people in that sense right um mm -hmm. Q, uh, you mentioned earlier, um, and I think I was a bit maybe even defensive against it, but um, I think it is actually a good thing to bring back up. Um, you know, uh, Russia had given some of its reasons, and um, I think it's it's fair to say that even though I find them to be completely bullshit, um, there is a point to be made about them. Did you want to reiterate that at all? Well, I, I think my main 
argument was you know you're gonna hear we hear a lot of like back and forth and and again it's between people can call whatever they want i guess it's propaganda at this point is the is the 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 keyword um and obviously it's coming out of the kremlin the the main point i was trying to make of all this was that um i think there is an anti-semitism problem all around the world I think you're seeing it in action in the United States. I think you're seeing it in Europe. I think you're seeing it in Asia. Um, there is a more fascist type mindset that is kind of developed in people. But the overarching point, though, is that Vladimir Putin's whole argument for going into Ukraine was the rise of anti-Semitism. And he basically used the word Nazis in Ukraine. Now I can I can take on I can take from my own assertion that there are a growing anti-Semitism problem around the world, but the mindset to, to actually blame anti-Semitism for going into another country and essentially killing civilians, if he if he actually had a real problem, he would resist his own authoritarian urges. And actually try and pull back on, you know, trying to literally take over somebody else's country um, and would actually provide aid or resources to ultimately what uh, to fight that problem. But he seems to be like shadowing Kiev and trying to take Zelensky out. How are you going to solve an anti-Semitism problem by killing a Jewish president? Uh, it never it doesn't make sense. And, and it ultimately it's a house of cards that crumbles on itself. So. That, that that's is my main point. That is uh, actually that's amazing. Um, that's a very very good point, and and it's really actually it's very weird, especially since we've been talking about the motivations of Putin. Um, how it seems that it's become so focal on him versus Zelensky, and that might just be media framing it this way, right? Um, I I but. At the same time, you know, um, a lot of Russian disinformation about Zelensky leave country or running away had come out early on, and you know he had to come out and like refute it. And I have to say, he's 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 been a badass, you know, um, as far he's as leadership well. goes. Yeah, he's done really well. Like, it's it's a very tough. I mean, I don't, I I couldn't be in that position. I could tell you that much. That's being in his place, this has got to be, you're, you're going up against the second, second strongest military in the world. And you're defiantly holding him back. Um, I kind of want to even get into that a little bit. Like um, what's, what do you think's going through his mind right now? What do you, what do you think? What do you think he's thinking of? As far as Zelensky? Yeah. Like what's going on in that guy's head, man? Probably fear and adrenaline i would guess if i just taking a stab at it i mean uh you know look i he he obviously is um he's doing what a politician should do in this moment and mm -hmm. he's he's standing firm and and like i always looked at it as like you're a ship captain and you have to be the one kind of maintaining the order when disaster strikes and you know, I think too often we we kind of view our own politicians as cowards and, you know, little Marco and uh, obviously uh, the, <laughs> the people we have in, in this country. We, we don't see them as people that would be jumping to the front of the line to to fight first. Um, this is the celebrity I mean, yeah. we should have elected, by the way. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 always yeah. For, I always forget he was literally on like a show about being a president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, he 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 actually won Ukraine's version of Dancing with the Stars. If you didn't know that, um, awesome. and he can dance too. Yeah. <laughs> He's a triple threat, man. But, uh, but I, I I also on on the separate end though I I I I really want Americans to chill out with like I'm seeing a lot of narratives of like Marvel references. This is an actual conflict where people are losing their lives, and we need to like. I think we need to scale back on this. The the we're he's becoming very so like much a celebrity, which is good. I think he's done a great job, and I think he's um, holding firm. But like, I let's let's focus on the task at hand before we start like, you know, putting him on magazine covers. It's hard from the American perspective to understand the Ukrainian perspective on this. Um, we have not had to go through all the recent struggles that they have gone through. We've had our own whole thing going on, but um, you know, it doesn't pale in the comparison of them actually working on building a stable government um, and, and moving in that direction. And um, I understand, I mean, you know, there's a lot of reverie in standing up against, and, and I understand why people are trying to make a segue to, um, you know, a Marvel superhero or, or something like that, because when you're faced with, you know, such a challenge as holding back a, such a big military force like this, um, you know, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of conviction. And I, I, mean, I also think in general have that type of resiliency about them that they're they're kind of unwavering once they have a belief at least that's what i've gotten from their from their cultural um for, as a cultural perspective on them um you know they they're 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 not afraid to die for their causes and like tom was saying earlier about the morale you know he's just he's able to provide that boost or that that reverberation of that morale and he's keeping the morale so high that's why they're doing so well in holding back the russian uh army yeah and it's i i agree with both of you in the sense that i think we need to it's easy to memify a conflict in another part of the world and and Gato, I think you said this very well. Like we've been so detached from a conflict in the sense of like America saw something shiny after we realized that Afghanistan and Iraq were not invasions that were were truthful, and we were there for reasons that we could not understand. So we went on to other things, and it's unfortunate because there were so many American servicemen and women who who fought in both of those conflicts and sacrificed so much. And the best thing we can do is give them a fucking flyover in an NFL game. We also need to recognize that this isn't Q. You said it best. This isn't a fucking game, man. Like yeah. this yeah. is a part of the world that has only seen peace and stillness for probably the last like 15 years. It wasn't too long ago that there was a, number of like police actions in parts of the world in Kosovo and Czechos in Serbia and yeah. a number of other states. I mean, Chechnya has been a constant 
you know, hot zone for a while. Um, Belarus has had its problems. Um, it's, this is a very complicated part of the world that has seen a lot of suffering and violence and the resiliency of the men and women that have remained in Ukraine, whether by design or by disaster, should really be applaud, applauded, not necessarily in the sense of, I'm gonna post a meme about them or, oh no, I see this thing on, this, this war happening in Ukraine, I'm going to put a post out there and make it about me. Right. You really should be trying to find a way and how you can call your Senator, call your Congressman or Congress person and find a way to get this situation resolved. I don't think that will do a whole lot because ultimately this is a part of the world that we don't have a ton of leverage in, but you have to, you have to say that, for a country that is surrounded by enemies, they are doing very, very well. And Zelensky at this point, they just need to hold on for a little bit longer. But I will say, though, it took three weeks to take Baghdad in 2003. So we are not nearly toward we're we haven't even started right now. This could go on for a much longer time. And that's, and that's, yeah, that's, that's the thing we have to keep in mind here is because I think too often in this, like, you know, this current era, we, we memify everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think, I think it, it sets a dangerous precedent because the, like I, you know, right now we we're again, it's Tuesday, this comes out Friday. So Friday could be a whole different ball game. Um, I, I want to refrain from like memifying everything because this this could all go very south very quickly. Yes, and uh, I you know again you, the people have to understand what that is going to entail. That is going to entail a lot of human suffering, and uh, keep keep perspective yeah. about that. Yeah, and and yeah, memes essentially are diminishing that. And and w- actually, this goes back to what. Q had said a few days ago when he had mentioned that like the cold war never really ended. Mm-hmm. Um, I reflect back and I think about the U S um, ambassador to uh, Berlin who, while the Berlin wall was, was falling um, talked to the representatives of the former Soviet union and made a, it was an impromptu kind of statement that kind of became a big deal. And it was the not one inch more statement um, about the West moving towards the East, towards the Eastern Bloc. And Tom had brought up all of the difficulties, all the different conflicts that have surrounded this area over the last 15 years. And it is largely a product of that post-Cold War a tribute that this this very, very gray area of the of the globe. It was it was not it was no longer under a Soviet rule necessarily, and it was free at the time of Western democracy kind of going on. And one of the interesting things about Ukraine is that over time it is organically chosen to become a free democracy. I sit here and I wonder if 
the reason that it had become it has become this point of contention for Russia is because it is right there in Putin's backyard and it is a glaring show of defeat for the Russian empire and the uh, former Soviet union, which in the very beginning of this invasion, Putin had alluded to, um, you know, Soviet times and a little bit of czarism too, you know, to that again, like Tom had said, the, that, growing of the Russian empire. Can I ask you guys, regardless of how this plays out um, over the next few, few years, are we, are we going into a cold war? Is this cold war 2.0 or, or the, is this solid continuation of the original cold war? Like definitively. I don't think that cold war has ever ended. Um, Okay. So that's like three of us. (laughs) Yeah. And, and and I don't mean to be like, I don't mean to dismiss that question, but like we, the, the West, particularly the United States never stopped viewing Russia in recovery as anything but an enemy and anything but as a nemesis. And the way that we have interacted with the former Soviet Union, now Russian Federation, we still took the stance that we need to be at arm's length from them and they can never be trusted. And I think that's very much a holdover from Leninism and the Russian revolution, where there is a fear that um, the Soviet mindset or communism will engulf the world. And we never truly were willing to, create a open door policy to Russia and include them into Europe. They've always been kind of had to play catch up or had to be the, the Europe, but not really. And I'm thinking back right now to, um, do you guys remember the documentary that the, the writer from everybody loves Raymond or the creator of everybody loves Raymond he went to Russia to create an Everybody Loves Raymond in Russia. And they talked very much about what the culture in Russia is and Russian culture, modern Russian culture, at least when that came out then was very much just like taking like bits and pieces from the West and just like utilizing them. So Britney Spears was huge in Russia because she was a status symbol or she was a fashion icon, not necessarily for her music, and we've never really given Russia the time of day and included them into the West and into Europe because we've always tried to keep them away because we've always it's, been in fear of them, mostly because of their nuclear armament. It's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because there was like after the, the Soviet Union dissolvement, when, when relations started getting uh, good, we, we did this like cultural swap. And mm-hmm. he was saying that Russians love the movie Wall Street with Mike yeah. Douglas. So they love that movie. And uh, he tried to, to understand it. And it was exactly it was exactly for that. It was what you said. Actually, it was almost verbatim. And I was wondering if you had actually had heard the same speech from this guy because that was very much the point that he was making. No, um, but the the name of the movie that I was referring to is Exporting Raymond, and it was done by Philip Rosenthal, who is the 
Um, he was the the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. It ends up not working out and he ends up leaving the project in Russia because they tried to change it too much because um, in Russian culture at the time, they look at television shows as a way to understand like world trends in fashion. So it didn't necessarily work when the 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 actress who's supposed to play um, uh, Deborah Barone is in high heels and a mini skirt and Ray is in a like a very like chic suit like Ray Romano's character and Patricia Heaton's character are supposed to be like salt of the earth Long Islanders where they're just complaining that Newsday is now five cents more than what it was two weeks ago. But they've created like this upscale lifestyle and they've, I don't think they have kids in the show. And he was like, this is too weird and this is not what it's supposed to be. So therefore I'm out. Um, but all that to be said, like wanted to provide that context. And from what I've heard from you, Gatto, it sounds like they're kind of on the same path. It's just, it's just a very messy situation. This is what happens whenever these conflicts go on. It's literally just the media trying to, media from the, from the Kremlin or media from, from here, just trying to manufacture consent, you know? And, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, to be honest though, I, in this situation, like I want to give them full consent and not only the inevitable question here is like when, the country itself asks for a democracy and another country decides that that brand of government is not okay. It's just not okay with me. And you know what? That would be the flip too, where I would, I would object if a country decided we're communist and America was like, no, no, no. Like, let's say, let's say Mexico was like, we want to go communist. And we decided we're going to go in there and fuck it. Well, I would I mean, say that's that's fucked up. You know, I would I would one hundred percent. You know, kind of what happened in Vietnam. No, they were in like, Korea. hey, it is. Yeah. Look, don't don't get me wrong. We're not saints, and and I think what I I think that was my I think that's my main point is that I want people to have a realistic mindset of what's going on here. In that, I mean, because you know we've we've made the parallels with Afghanistan. Like we did invade in Afghanistan, and civilians were killed, and we just look at them like their numbers and it's like no work no life is worth more than others is my opinion i would also say too you could probably make the argument that we are anti this war that russia and ukraine are having meanwhile our media says nothing about the war that's currently going on between saudi arabia and yemen there is a issue of colorism in media where if you are not the whitest whites, um, or you're not Christian, or you're not European. Your bloodshed really doesn't matter, and we learned that in Kosovo and and Yugoslavia in the '90s. Well, you know, because like I mean, Colin Powell, weapons of mass destruction led to how many people dying? Not only Americans, but you know, people Hundreds in Iraq. People in, I mean, just unlimited bloodshed, and we invaded that country because we said what they're they're terrorists right and like they yeah. have weapons of mass destruction it's almost the same thing i don't i just don't want to be i don't want us to become hyper nationalistic and that's my my concern is that we are becoming hyper nationalistic again and it's like yeah let's fucking wipe russia off the map and it's like well let's get rid of putin i mean not not russia 
So, okay. Yeah, I don't, I again, Russia's like, gr- like this is, and this goes back to like the one, the not one more inch fucking statement that was made is that Russia's giving us an inch right now. They're giving us a huge inch and we're going to take it. Why? Because they are a competition that is adversarial to us. More allied, we wouldn't think twice about it. Thus, why Saudi Arabia can do what the fuck it wants, right? Which is um, a dangerous precedent because they killed it's a, a terrible a, precedent, <laughs> a U.S. resident in Jamal Khashoggi, and I, I just, I just think the, these things always have blowback. I mean, again, Hillary Clinton talking about the goddamn Mujahideen fucking resistance driving Russia out of Afghanistan, only to be eventually bit in the ass by the Taliban of the same people. I mean, like, George yeah. W. Bush fucking coming out and saying Putin stop was ironic as fuck, right? It's fucking ridiculous, man. It is ridiculous. Yeah. I think it's important to keep in mind that the only way that we are truly going to understand like the full context of situations like this is that we need to let history play out. And I'm not saying that we need to sit back and like see how this goes, but the farther away that we get from a particular conflict or issue, the better and the more clear our understanding of that situation is. And in the moment, it's very hard to see who's right and who's wrong. But I think it's fair to say that we can, we can infer who is right and who is wrong in this situation. But the, the politicians in this country, which are saying we shouldn't take Putin seriously when he threatens the world with nuclear destruction or they're saying we should be cool with a thermonuclear war oh god are fucking idiots like who the fuck is saying that dude i saw Adam kinzinger is saying it he said something to that effect where he was just like you know we should not be afraid of his um of putin's rhetoric it's like bro i don't have the card that gets me on the plane or in the bunker so i'm going to be scared about and this I, is and this I, is exactly why I need to stop making friends with Republicans just because they like Trump, they hate Trump. You know the funny thing is if there was ever a moment in like modern US history or since the atom bomb was invented to actually worry about a nuclear threat it's right now. Probably more so than even that Cuban Putin is on edge and the reason that I think Russia has gone so long unchecked is because we never even wanted to get into the discussion about the use of nuclear force. It was always a leverage point. I sit here and and seriously say with everything going wrong, his hit, he's getting older. I sometimes wonder if like he's not going to just let one fly. So, I, okay, so I here's, don't want to risk that. I don't I don't want to like what was one of the first things that they occupied or took over? Chernobyl. And I don't know if these sources were true, the reports were true, but there was increased there was an increased radioactivity levels. It's the perfect fog of war for moving a warhead. Like I actually worried that what he was doing this is all diversionary so that he could literally plant a bomb there and say, You decide to make a fucking you know, you decide to go against me ever again, I make this thing blow and the jet stream goes west and east, right? Yes. So I, I personally do not believe that Vladimir Putin will use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine because if you look on the map, Volograd, which is a Russian city, is not terribly far from Ukraine. 
And the previous name of Volograd is Stalingrad. I do not think it would be advantageous of them to have a nuclear fallout drift into a city that has made its bones, full intentionality on that, has made its bones being the pinnacle of the Soviet Union. Um, and ultimately, everything drifts west to east. Like, if you use a nuclear weapon in that part of the world, Russia will be impacted by it. It's not so much about using it. It's about having it where it is. It's about the strategic deployment of it, right? I get that, That's, but uh, the but, whole point about a nuclear weapon that makes it scary is you actually use it. But remember something also. We, we're talking about a person that we consider to be um, unwell, right? Whether whether or not he's sick or not doesn't really mean anything, right? We do think we do believe that he is not. He he has a mindset of a guy who is like an authoritarian, right? And it's ever and his own people are starting to maybe start looking at him a little bit differently. And if he feels like the U.S. is imminently going to take him out, and if he feels like his his only if he feels like he's a dead man anyway, why wouldn't he just let one off? Because he's like, I'm fucking fucked anyway. So I'm just saying, you don't want to, you don't want to parse. We're talking about nuclear weapons. We're not talking about a bomb or something that will fuck up a couple, a a couple blocks, which is bad enough. We are talking about mutually assured destruction, 300 million people dead. I don't want to. I don't want to play with a madman here. I'm not saying give in to him, but at the same time, we can't just take it on the idea of like, oh, he won't do it because he'll fuck his own. Like, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about his own people. Well, the problem is that like to give into this leverage allows to give into further leverage down the line, and it becomes compliance after a certain point, right? My and... my take is not giving in. It's give him give him an out. Give Putin an out at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is him, why the Ukrainians actually went to talk to him, right? Right. You have to give him an out. Don't don't further push him into a corner because that's only going to make it worse. And I I would argue that the Swift thing might actually be a bad thing. Yeah, actually, it was because it's not. This is West. This this is this is the West imposing upon him, right? And the more that the West actually pushes on him, I can see him not necessarily being going after Ukraine with this or putting the aggression towards Ukraine. I could see them I could see him applying it elsewhere or in other ways. And tell him he's gonna have he's gonna have he's gonna have to seek punish he's gonna have to be punished for this. Whatever that punishment is, you know, sanctions, bullshit like that. It's gonna it's gonna have to be part of the conversation, but you have to give him an out so that he can ultimately save face and pull out and stop this like this mounting escalation. Well, one could make the argument though in World War II, the reason why the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor was because the U.S. ceased its trade with them of steel and oil, and while not military like a military response, economic sanctions could be just as damning as like a military response. But I would have to say I'm impressed with the approach that the U.S. has taken 
compared it to the European Union and NATO countries where the U.S. is kind of just in the background. And I think the European Union, I don't know if applaud is the right word, but I think they should be recognized for the first time that they've actually stepped up. And this is the first time in history, I think, that they've actually provided military support for a country that's in need. But it's it's nice to know that while the U.S. is a player, we are not the primary player in this. Yeah, actually, to your point, build on that. I want to say, like, I don't know if it's because, like, we've we've been having a lot of trouble with, you know, fake, uh, false information or misinformation. Um, the U.S. government spent its entirety being as transparent as humanly possible to the point where I started trying to play the guess who game on who is leaking like information from Russia. Right. Because clearly people are talking out of Putin's circle and that's where we were getting our fucking information because it was so on point and so true. So much of the Intel that the U S was providing not only to Ukraine and NATO and to the news, it was, it was, it was accurate. It was very much, and and this administration has done a great job of of being transparent, at least in this situation. I'm not saying all situations, but at least in this situation, and not faltering from, I think, what it said at all. I like we haven't had that moment where we've backtracked yet, which I think might come, and it's going to be in a big one if things get worse. But right now, currently, we've done a good job of sticking to our word and being very open and transparent. And it's actually, it's, it might've been what threw Putin off completely. Well, it was definitely, yeah. it was definitely tossed out there to kind of send him a message of like, we know, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it, but even more staggering that he actually decided to do it. Even with that, that out there. Maybe that's what forced him actually into it. Right. Cause it's we had, possible. we called, we called his bluff and he, he couldn't let us know that we had gotten them right, and that's and that's my thing is like we no no one really expected. A lot of people were kind of dunking on uh, the Biden administration for being so forceful that their intelligence was telling them this. Um, so if he did it despite everyone knowing it already, he is he is a man who feels backed into a corner, and I don't want to see what he's willing to do. So one of the things that I had heard, and I don't have any veracity on it, um, or veracity, is that some of the videos about the invasion into Ukraine was actually done days before the actual thing had started. So even though they were saying this was live, yeah, like, I don't know, I don't know the veracity of, of this, but... Um, they were that's that's also where a lot of the rumor of like putin being like mentally ill came from and the funny thing is as we sit here i start to think what if russia is actually the ones trying to push this narrative of him being mentally ill <laughs> they want to scare you they want to make you worried that he'll do something more and then he'll just decide to call it off and take a rest and everyone be like oh yeah he had a mental breakdown because He's, you know, Putin. It's you know running you know, a it, giant country. The U.S. The, the U.S. It's so funny because the U.S. response has been so funny um, to watch because I think universally on the left, whether it be the corporate left or the 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 more um, 
uh, leftists left uh, have been pretty much in lockstep, like, we need to help Ukraine out and we need to stop Putin and this is an aggression, this is an act of war, this is this and that. The right, though, has been more kind of fractured to where you have the more moderate right, if that still exists, has been more, like, pro-Zelensky, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, they can't compliment the Biden administration, so they have to kind of, like, frame it in a way that Biden did something wrong. Uh, but then you have the, the Trump right, which is pretty much gone full boat in, you have Tucker Carlson talking about how Putin's uh, a genius and Trump saying pretty much echoing the same thing. It's uh, It's been kind of crazy to see. Yeah, there's been kind of a, a political tug of war between both sides of it. Um, and I think it's, it's hard for a lot of Republicans who are kind of like leaning into Trumpism to take his side in this regard because he's clearly so wrong on it when he's referring to the invasion of Ukraine as a great move from a real estate perspective. Um, <laughs> it, it seems so shallow and such an unintelligent response to a really complex and scary situation. I do want to bring one thing up, though, and I'm sorry to go backwards, but I wanted to look this up one more time. Um, Putin's move right now also reminds me a little bit of Leonid Brezhnev, who was a formal general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He was also somebody who was rumored to be not all the way there um, towards the end. And he died in office in 1982, but one of the three years before his death came the invasion of Afghanistan, which was a, like, a boondoggle of a situation for um, the Soviet army, which ultimately led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I'm wondering if we are having a similar situation where the decision-making is not necessarily 100%, and um, this is a similar decision that was made that can ultimately bring about systemic change within the Soviet, within the Russian Federation. I mean, let's let's be completely honest here. It, it, invading any sovereign country, whether they're landlocked next to you or not, in our modern day and age of globalism, is very much bad call. I mean. Again, I don't, I don't see this working out well in any way for him. I, yeah, I, I just, I, that, and I think that uh, Tom, it's a great point um, about like if he, it, like, that's another thing we're dealing. This is like the first time in a long time that we're dealing with a nuclear power, and as much as we like to flex on, you know, countries that don't have that capability, this is where we are in a completely different boat, and we have to play by a different set of rules. If we're truly in a like madness of King George the Third situation in Russia, do you really want like again? You're dealing with a potential wild card, so we have to treat this differently than every other situation recently. We spent a lot of time, I think, diplomatically as a country tiptoeing around Russia because they were a nuclear threat, and the reality is that like it didn't matter whether or not we did anything the fact is that anybody that has nuclear weapons can at any moment 
just decide it's a fucking Tuesday. I, I just I just think that like we always have to treat these situations um in, in a different light because you know you go I mean let's be real here for a second the Cuban Missile Crisis is not that long ago in the context of history. Yeah. To where like we're thinking to ourselves, like, I mean, literally they put, you know, warheads in Cuba pretty much aimed at us, ready to go. So to the idea of this, like, oh, mutually assured destruction, and it will be. I mean, if they had if they had done it back then, I mean, the way that the wind blows, it will eventually get to Europe and it would got it would have gotten to Russia and people would have started getting, you know, poisoning from uh from the uh, the fallout. But let's be real, like they didn't seem to care back then. I just don't ever want to like you're talking. We're not talking again. Any life loss is, is an absolute tragedy as far as I'm concerned. But we're talking about destruction, like end of the human race at this point. So we have to we have to really be very careful here. And again, I'm not talking about to keep tiptoeing yeah he's gonna have to be punished for this but we needed to get we need to get to a point first where this is de-escalated yeah and unfortunately there are it it makes it more complicated when you have other countries involved as well and i'm not necessarily referring to like the european union countries or the nato countries but i'm referring more to of the rogue state of belarus that's now involved and this complicating factor of this country that really serves no military or economic gain for um really serves no military or economic gain for russia but they're just there to kind of like dump the works i don't know what they play in that but i also know like they are they are in the mix and what happens with them could complicate things you have um the, the, the dictator of that country who has stifled elections and things of that nature, and now they're embroiled in this as well. And yep. it, it makes things very complicated. And I don't mean to minimize the entire situation with that, but I think if it was straight up like European Union, Russian Federation, United States involved, it would be an easier ask but now you have all these other uncontrollable entities involved with the things. Yeah, because, you know, it's also an idea of, like, is this where Putin stops, or does he, you know, try and take over the Baltics next? And does he cross into a NATO country? So, I don't want to, I don't want to play the prediction game, but I want to use historical context as kind of a primer of what the future could potentially hold for the Russian army and the Russian Federation at large. If you look at the major conflicts where Russia served as the aggressor, that they were actually invading other countries, you look at starting earliest with the Crimean War, um, then the 1905 Russo-Japanese War, where they actually declared war on Japan and lost pretty handedly to an up-and-coming country in Japan. And it's fair to argue that the Russo-Japanese War was the real reason why the Romanov Empire collapsed. 
where the Romanov dynasty collapsed. You look at the the Russia-Finland war, known as the Winter War, I think it was in 1940, where Russia invaded Finland and lost. And then you look at the the the, the war in Afghanistan with Russia or with the Soviet Union. And I think it's important to note that while this is not exact truth, the times in which Russia has invaded other countries has not gone well for them. And they have been better served in a defensive capacity rather than one where they are on the offensive and they're pushing. And when they see, when they see stiff resistance from a defender, it becomes very complicated. And I, and I think that they, they've done very well as a defensive country. Um, you look at some of the, the campaigns, again, this is 100 years ago, but you look at some of the campaigns that they utilized during World War I, and they were huge failures. Yeah. Um, incredible losses of life. And, I mean, the Winter War is an exact not an exact, but it's a good example of that too, where you're you're fighting a country that's like a a percentage point of the size of Russia and they're able to defend their own country. And then I mean the the war with Japan in nineteen oh five is another great example as well, where you know they were anticipating a major victory and they were handed a pretty significant defeat and it collapsed the Russian economy at that point and History might not always repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes on occasion. Um, so I think we need to look at some of this historical context and understand where we are and understand that there might be more to this story. Yeah, and I think, yeah. I, I, think that, I think this will be a continuous conversation for us because, as we mentioned a couple times, and I think it's always good to bring up that this is evolving by the minute so we have to kind of uh look at things through uh, a, a current lens dude as we sit here biden just gave his state of the union address and i haven't seen any headlines because dell laptops suck <laughs> 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 and i can't check right now um got a, our sponsor today was dell laptop so i think you need to take that back steve from dell <laughs> <laughs> he's making a comeback uh, guys welcome yeah. steve from dell if if you like if you like laptops that take an incredibly long time to boot up uh get yourself a dell always a crowd pleaser by the way yeah every job no. that i had where i worked in an office um I had a Dell computer, and I wanted to throw it against the wall by day. Did did anything come back on fucking Biden's State of the Union? You guys are getting any information? From any hot tips? What from what I'm seeing, oh, uh, well, first things first, uh, the Texas results came back for governor. It will be Greg Abbott versus Beto O'Rourke. So... Yay. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, good, not good for uh, Democrats, because... That's not gonna. That's not gonna go well for them. Not good um, for restaurant owners because he's gonna stand at every fucking table. In the dude, <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna skateboard all over their fucking walls and shit. George Prescott Bush lost. Yeah, but he's he sucks. He, he George P. Bush. He doesn't have the charisma of Jeb. He doesn't have his dad. He doesn't, he doesn't have his dad. That's a good thing, right? He doesn't have his dad. What are you really doing here? He, he's, not a, he, he's not his father. He can't stand up to his father. Come on. 
Please clap. <laughs> Please. Dude, you know what the worst part about that? That, like, so cutting that clip for the outro, find the YouTube video of him saying that. And it's so much more awkward than that oh, little bit of him just saying, now please clap. Because <laughs> he like goes into he's the clapped. speech. You don't know where the fuck he's going. It's like me talking on this podcast. And, and, and at the very end, he's just like looking around expecting fucking an OV and nobody's even fucking moving. Like, and, and. Yeah, he, Everybody it's was great there because... for the pulled porn. We all know it. <laughs> it's so great because he actually takes a moment and pauses waiting for the applause and he's like please clap it, it's almost like this. whoever wrote the speech like put in parentheses like applause like like to wait for the applause that was going to come <laughs> he, he is uh, he is clearly the superior bush it was what was that like was it at a library for elderly people that he gave that speech at? Well, that's well. I mean, let's be real. His, <laughs> his his constituency was pretty much like eighty five and above. That was pretty much the only people that were voting for. It Jan. was the bingo borderline crowd. incoherent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's what they were doing. They thought he. It, I I bet if he yelled out like fucking B eight, they would have all jumped fucking their feet. He would have said early bird special. (laughs) Yeah. Free space. Matlock. Yeah. (laughs) Bring back TV land. We're going to make murder she we're gonna make murder she wrote great again, guys. Price is right has its own channel under a Jeb administration. There'll be no inflation in the price is right. State run, me- state run media is just Drew Carey on the prices right, twenty four hours a day. Drew Carey's all disheveled. He hasn't slept in like two weeks. Like, I mean, that's how he looks normally. Say so, about the Bush family. Say <laughs> Under a Jeb uh, administration, every hour is early bird hour. There's so many places he went wrong in his campaign. Yeah, the exclamation point was the first part. You know, I, <laughs> I really feel Jeb. like this entire constituency drove like Mercury Sables. Uh, well, Lincoln Cougars. <laughs> yes. God, it was so fun to see. It was so fun to see his son just like try and curry favor with Trump after he, like he, like after Trump just like annihilated his father. <laughs> <laughs> But isn't that the you know, isn't that the thing so, thing to do? I guess we'll you get into make Trump it. for like uh, a hot second, but it's just so interesting to see how mealy mouth a lot of the politicians are have been around Ukraine and Russia after taking kind of their nod from what Trump has been saying and how unpopular of a response he is Trump has received for his thoughts on Ukraine. I do have a question about that. Laid on. All right. And um, I wonder if the only reason that they bring it up is because they know they're going to get new share for it. They're going to get time in the media for making that controversial statement. They know it's wrong. They know they're wrong for saying it. They they say it only for that fact, and then because 
when when you say something like that, because this is this is classic Trump too, you know, you say something like that, you're people are going to ask you why did you say that, and then you're going to have this opportunity for a longer mic period in which you can actually give a full frontal speech on it, right? Like it's it's and and with with him, I don't I don't necessarily think that with him, I with Trump. He, Right. I, I think yeah. he just has a similar mindset of how the world works. And yeah. he just, he, in his mind, if, if, I mean, if Trump had it his way, he would probably invade Mexico and Canada. Um, if he had full reign to do whatever he wants, it's, it's, I, I think he, he views it as just an expanding expansion of ideals that he shares. Well, one could say, that Trump is an actor trying to play a president. One can say Zelensky is a is a president who acted as a president. And one can say Putin is a president who's trying to be an actor. I, a lot of does that make like... does that make sense? <laughs> A lot of people, a lot of people were shocked that he, like, oh my god, he was an actor. And I'm like, Ronald Reagan was a fucking actor. Like, it's not Ronald Reagan played a president. (laughs) He literally played a president. Like that was the acting role. Like, yeah, just find it funny that people are so shocked that he was this guy's an actor. And it's like, well, yeah, it's not uncommon. I mean, he sold washing machines and was in like a handful of movies. So, oh, there you go again, Tommy. Yeah, it was actually more like he was just looking for work and decided to become the leader of the free world. It's cool. Yeah. Well, he was a good spokesperson. That's about it. Um, yeah. Really great for GE. Yeah. GE frontman. Yeah. The, the Trump response is not shocking to me at all. Um, I mean, I, let's he be real here also. And I, I find it funny that he's using, he's, um, he, a lot of his thing is his shtick lately has been this would never happen under a Trump administration. And he's right, actually, uh, but it doesn't mean that it, it's a good thing. It's mainly because Trump was well. Trump was anti was so anti NATO um, that he was never going to have you know Ukraine join. And I mean, honestly, I think if he had if he had a say of it, he would disband it completely. So that's exactly what Putin wants. So Putin never felt the need to you know do that because he was getting everything he wanted from Trump. Yeah, I, I just feel like the whole argument from Trump and the supporters of Trump that this would never happen under him is such like a brain dead response. Like dictators didn't feel threatened under him, so they didn't have to do shit like this. And exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He let them get away with a lot of things that, under normal circumstances, would be incredibly problematic, and places would be penalized for that. Like he, it's no. I'm not parsing words and I'm not exaggerating, but he cozied up with dictators and they were cool mm-hmm. with him and he was cool with him. Why? Because they said, if you want to build the Trump Tower here, you can. And he was like, these guys are the greatest. And while this probably would not have happened under the Trump administration, it's not necessarily because folks are taking advantage of Joe Biden. It's that they feel that America is more willing to respond to a global crisis than they would under Trump, where Trump would be like, these things happen. Oh, no. (laughs) 
I mentioned China. this very strongly and very powerfully. Some said I was yeah. too powerful. <laughs> and so, I mean, look at look at who his best friends were. I mean, it was it was uh, Kim Jong Un. He fell in love. <laughs> Putin and Duterte in the Philippines, and like, I mean, come on. You know, it's uh, one thing I do want to actually bring up now that we're kind of talking about it is NATO. We haven't touched on NATO. And the the real thing here, the real takeaway I think we we forget about because we're so, you know, we've, like, especially on this conversation, but, like, in general, too, um, how much of a threat Putin actually takes NATO. Putin really takes NATO as a threat. I think a lot of it might have been an overreaction to NATO. And the fact, the fact of the matter was that they were, they weren't really in solidarity before this, and they probably wouldn't have, in the in the name of their own economic needs, wouldn't have allowed Ukraine to become part of NATO. And like the one thing I I can tell you about my time in Europe is that any form of aggression is is looked upon poorly because of this exact scenario that we're in now. And this situation, and you've heard it probably on a million other, you know, news outlets is that this brings NATO together. And the exact thing that he thought he was going to stop or, you know, would, would scare NATO out of talks of, I think he's pushed them further into, right? Because now Germany just dropped a, a bomb of money into their own defense funding. Like, they, they typically it was like 1.4% and they just they ju- just jumped up huge. They He's like, that's why I think everyone's like, this had the effect of what you thought it was going to do. And one of the things I think is the NATO thing, the NATO angle, we, we forget. It's, it's actually, it's that deterrent, the Article 5 is a serious fucking deterrent, man. You attack one of us, you attack all of us. It's a fucking serious pact. Well, I think I, I, he thought that there was still some fallout from what Trump said about NATO. I said nobody is pulling their weight. And Trump was not yeah. necessarily wrong when he said that, though, because no. if you think about it, there were a number of countries that are a part of NATO that were really relying on other countries to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of military spending. And I want to be mindful, like, not to get into, like, the hawk component of this conversation. Like, we should be pro, like, military spending, and we should dump all of our excess money into buying more shit from Raytheon or General Dynamics. But there, he was not wrong in the sense to challenge that, like, why are we, as the United States, putting more money into defending these countries than these countries are willing to do for themselves? And... I, I think you brought up a good point, Gato, where you said, like, if anything, this has brought the European countries closer together and has repurposed NATO from what it has been for the last 30 years as this just kind of, like, loose military affiliation with all these countries, and now it's a unified force and has, has given it a purpose again where they've been trying to justify for a number of years why NATO is still a thing. And I don't think Putin put that in the calculus, just given 
the criticism that Trump lob, like lobbed against them and just the general apathy of just other European countries and the thought that there would be a conflict. Well, Does anyone want to lead off on talking about China here? Um, I mean, look, they're clearly watching and seeing how this is going to go. And I, I, I think they're kind of building a, a response based upon however this ends up going, because obviously the, the high button, the hot button issue is Taiwan. I, look, I don't really have much to say about China at this moment um, because there's <laughs> they they did the, the exact thing I expected them to do, which was they pretty much kind of very lukewarm way told Putin to maybe like you know relax a little no, and stop. No, that stop. Yeah, but please stop. Don't. Th they don't knew this was coming. <laughs> they they knew they knew this was coming well before anybody else well, though but remember also is that like the one benefit for the west is that aside from the fact that they do have mutual interests there is a bit of a rivalry between russia and china as well mm -hmm. so you know it stands the benefit that they're not exactly always in the uh the same square as as putin but look i i think go, stepping back for a second to the nato thing um it's very clear that Putin feels ostracized from NATO, and I think I think it's very much that I think he, from the signs he wants to be part of NATO, mainly because they are shaping the influence of of uh, policy in Europe and in the West. So I think he feels that he should he should at least have some influence on um, how that how that goes, and clearly. If he felt like Ukraine was going to join, he felt he had to step in, and obviously it was a terrible mistake. Um, but but again, we are looking at these global powers that are starting to push back on uh, the U.S. and and Europe, and China is one of those countries that obviously is going to you know see how this kind of shakes out. But I don't know. I, I think they're probably gonna stay back until this has all been kind of settled. So my take on China with this one is um, one, they empathize with Russia in the fact that they're, they're both countries that have a land. Like I, I think, I think there's a parallel here in which Ukraine is to Russia as Taiwan is to China. Right. And to your point, the Chinese are very interested just to see what the national response is like the same, uh, the same day or the day after the invasion started happening. They, they deliberately flew planes over Taiwan into Taiwan airspace, just, just to see what would happen, you know? Um, and on top of that, I, even though I, I want to say China's an ally right now, of Russia. Um, and as much as there might've been adversarial stuff going on there, I don't think it's prevalent anymore. I don't think those rules matter as much anymore because we live in an age of globalization. And when, when all of this happened, China actually removed their grain import taxes on Russia. They actually were trying to help remove some of the pain of of the actual sanctions that were being placed upon uh, Russia at the time. And I wouldn't say that, like, I think China has everything to gain here from seeing into this 
conflict potentially they might just be able to pick up the pieces and like one of the things i would criticize the administration um the u.s administration doing is when we heard about them easing the uh import taxes is that we should have hit china back up for them they're trying to play winners here you know and and we don't want that to happen because you want to talk about an actual total war occurring it might start in the east in a weird way yeah i i think you brought up a really good point gato in that china is is opportunistic right now because they know when there is like a global power vacuum that they can very easily fill it and Mm -hmm. they are they're waiting on the sidelines and you can tell by the abstention of their vote in the UN Security Council um, yep. meeting where a number of countries voted to condemn Russia for their action in Ukraine and China voted to abstain and uh, two other countries, I believe. But India? Because India and... Not Saudi a surprise with Modi. Not Saudi not a surprise Arabia. with uh, yeah, that's not a surprise with Modi in charge of India. No. Hey man, no. these are these are top ten. These are top ten economies. You know what I mean? They 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 have a lot to lose and to win here. You're right. So um, I think that China is playing both sides right now in the sense that they, Xi Jinping has encouraged Putin to negotiate with. Um, the EU and NATO to make sure that this goes away. While at the same time, I think they know that they have a lot to gain from this as well. I don't think that it is a true alliance. I think it's more of a my enemy is my enemy is my friend. And who's their enemy? I think anybody who is willing to question their authority. Is it the general West? Is it NATO or is it the US? <laughs> I think anybody that provides any kind of resistance to like some of the policies and the progress of China. Correct. Um, So I think it's, again, a loose association, very much in the same way um, when the Olympics were occurring. By the way, that happened and no one gave a shit because they were happening in a country where there's a current, like, occupation of a sect of the population in concentration camps. But Vladimir Putin was the one to show up and show with Xi Jinping. So I think there is some kind of like, hey, you did me a solid there. I'll do one for you. But when you are uh, invading a country for no reason and it's not going well, it's also a hard time to find friends. Anybody have any closing thoughts on that? Um, Some good resources um, of media to learn about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. Um, I brought up earlier um, some of the atrocities that had occurred in that part of the world um, pre-World War II and after. A book by Timothy Snyder called Bloodlands talks specifically about... um, the relationship between Europe, between Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, and the agreement that they had to split Eastern Europe down the middle and occupy both sections, but also how they starved a majority of the population there and the mass executions that happened in Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, and a number of other places in that part of the world. 
Um, again, the book's name is called Bloodlands, and it's by Timothy Snyder. Some other things to consider. Um, I mentioned earlier the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, the Crimean War, I think in 1853. I could be wrong about that. Um, the Winter War between Russia and Finland, and then obviously the, the Russo-Afghan War from 1978 to 1989. All of these give you some good, un gives you good context around military actions that the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and the Russian Federation have, um, have conducted. Um, not so much the Russian Federation, but you could probably look into actions in Chechnya and Georgia, and then the, the occupation of the Crimean Peninsula as some better insight into that. Um, and then lastly, I want to um, provide another resource, the Breaking Points podcast. Um, a friend of ours, a friend of the, a friend of the pod, um, that might be stolen from another podcast out there, but a friend of the show has recommended um, Breaking Points podcast, and it's a good, unbiased, and objective analysis of today's news, um, and they kind of operate outside of the mainstream media platform. Give them a listen. They have a really good breakdown. I think it's about two hours about um, the action in Ukraine. And I would just encourage folks who are sticking very close to the story to find some time to disconnect because while it's important to stay informed, it's also really important not to focus heavily on tragedy and, and, and relish in some of the, the sadness that's occurring. Um, this isn't an Instagrammable event, but it takes some time to get away from social media and let your brain operate outside of the, the digital platform. Got what do you got? There's a documentary on Netflix. It is called Winter on Fire. Um, it's about the maiden protests. I found it interesting. There is... A book called uh, Not One Inch by M.E. Sarity. All right. Well, I've gotten, you know, speaking of you, you recommended the podcast, Tom. Uh, I'm going to recommend one as well. Uh, there's a comedian named Mark Marin who has a long running show called uh, WTF. Uh, I've been kind of binging it lately. Um, I, I'm a big fan of his, like, kind of dry and, like, nagging humor uh, but he's actually had some really great guests on um he had I, I just listened to one with quentin tarantino uh, i really appreciate his interview style uh he has this way of kind of disarming his uh guests and he really gets into you know with quentin tarantino you expect it to be all about movies he actually gets tarantino talking about his estranged father um and his also his stepdad uh it was a really awesome conversation to listen to uh, but he's had people like Ridley Scott. He's had Barack Obama on. Um, really ranges from just your standard comedian to world leaders. So, uh, uh, big fan of it. I recommend it. Give it a listen. He's a he's a really really good interviewer. Um, he's awesome. probably probably like the best since like Howard Stern. And um, I think didn't he begin like doing this podcast out of his garage or something? 
I believe he still does it in his garage. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, he still he still I believe he still does it there. But I I I've always been a fan of Marin. Um, but I never really listened to uh, his podcast, and I signed up for uh, Stitcher. Also, kind of a I I don't typically ever think of paying for podcasts, but it was thirty five dollars for the year, uh, which accounts to about three dollars a month, and it has like full libraries of a lot of the shows that I like uh, nice. that are kind of stuck behind paywalls, and uh, I just kind of started listening to some of his uh, some of his shows, and it's he he really does have a very unique style. He is so like <laughs> I forget the word, but like he he is like clearly like he's very much kind of me like he's very anxiety ridden and he's a former smoker and former <laughs> cocaine user. Um, so he well, you can tell he's very ag- he has a very agitated style, which I just kind of find funny and endearing, but. Uh, but yeah, the the it's just amazing. Every one I've listened to so far, he has an ability of getting people to open up, which is uh, very unique. And I think because maybe because he's so chaotic that they just kind of find a way to relax. But uh, uh, really, really, really kind of a long form. The the Tarantino one was about an hour and a half, but it felt like ten minutes. So recommended anybody's in the podcast. Uh, it's one of the bigger ones out there, but still big fan of it. Super. Yeah, Tom, I, I I think you made a great po- point before, Tom. I think uh, th- it's important to stay educated on uh, the, the situation, but I think people need to find a couple moments to separate from it, um, and otherwise you will go crazy. Uh, so I think uh, finding an outlet that's, whether it be reading a book or podcast or TV show, by the way, uh, thank you for the recommendation on RK81. I blew through it. Uh, incredible definitely yeah it was very crazy and uh i'm kind of excited to see where season two goes so i will double down on that and also say for anybody who didn't listen to you guys before listen to me now and give that a watch um let's move now quickly to assholes of the week and we are going to snake back to q Oh, man. So for anybody who has not heard, um, there was an an executive from Estee Lauder um, who recently lost his job over an Instagram post. One of the reasons why I really hate uh, social media. His name is John Dempsey. Apparently, he was making $10 million a year, which I mean, did. Sure. Yeah. Um, He posted. I'm not even (laughs) going. He posted something. I'm not even going to like give the, if you want to look up what he posted, feel, please feel free. I don't want to give it any more oxygen than he already did. Um, let's just say it had a kind of are though. <laughs> Calling him an asshole. Sure. But uh, well then, then, you know, we'll just never talk about anybody who does something wrong then. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to say the context of what, what he said, but um, he, he, I, again, I, listen, Anybody that does that is an asshole to me. But when you're in a yes, high paying agreed. position like that, making $10 million a year, if I was making $10 million a year, you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't see a single post on social media ever. Um, yeah, why really would you do that? Go, yeah, I, honestly, I would just be sitting on my yacht all day and uh, sipping martinis. Uh, but it's just really, really funny. Really, really funny to see how dumb of a post it was to. Um, racist and dumb. So really, 
really vying for the uh, asshole trifecta. Um, but he he said that he he didn't even look at it before he posted it, which number one is bullshit. Uh, but number two, like, are, does he make a habit of posting things that he doesn't even look at? I mean, it's not even a good response. Um, he also was quoted saying uh, in a in a post on Twitter, the meme is the furthest thing from what I stand for, and I should have never reposted it. But you did. Here we are. And, yeah. And... <laughs> Again, you know, it, it very much screams, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry I, I got caught. So I'm sorry uh, but for he, those who I may have. Yeah. I've, I've, I, <laughs> I'm sorry I let my company down. That I, The problem is, like, he never really, he, even in the, in the conversation, he, uh, the post that he made, he doesn't even really apologize to the, the people um, that he offended. Uh, it is very brief and it seems more upset that he made the, that he posted and got fired over it rather than that he offended a lot of people. So, uh, to me, giant asshole, he was let go by Estee Lauder, um, recently. So, cost himself $10 million on a stupid post. Life lesson, people. Don't press send. Yep. Um, there are so many assholes. Um, one of them could have been the International Automobile Federation. Um, but I am going to go back to an oldie but a goodie, and that is our good friend Rob Manfred. Um, oh. And as of right now, baseball has um, canceled the first two series of the year and opening day because of their continued battle with the Players Association over um, a number of issues related to um, um, the, the playoff structure and the, the payouts for players. And this has been an issue going back since December, and it just does not seem like the owners of these teams want to have a season. And it's really disappointing because I was actually looking forward to this year of baseball and some of the, the, the rivalries and the, the pennant races that were going to happen this year. And this is probably what's going to kill baseball and make it a second or third rate sport in America. And it makes me really sad because it's such a money driven problem that they have right now. And all the problems are money driven. And it's incredibly disappointing that you, after four months, they still can't, cannot find a resolution to this issue and so many other sports um, sports and regulatory bodies are able to figure it out, but baseball can't. Just blows my mind, and it's incredibly disappointing. And the the reporting on it has been spot on. It, the majority of the reporting has been incredibly critical of um, Major League Baseball and the owners. And I'm glad to see that the players are not getting a ton of heat for it because that's normally how it goes, that we're quick to blame labor rather than the ones that are making the most money off of it. And that's it for me. Gotta, what do you got? This is actually going back a few weeks, but 
feel like it still kind of works. There was a court case with Hertz rental vehicles. Did anyone hear about this one? Not. So what was happening was, let's say you went and you rented a vehicle. And then you decided that you needed to stay in town for a little bit longer. Let's say you were, you know, attending to a family member or what have you. What would happen is Hertz would then charge you for those extra days. And when they would do that, they would run your card. And if it didn't come back, um, if the balance was declined on your card, they would actually uh, send in or they would they would report a stolen vehicle. What was happening was that, and this is this is why they are fucking assholes. Um, is people would return the vehicles, uh, pay the rest of the balance on on their car rental, and Hertz would not actually go and remove the uh, police report. So they would go and they would hunt the police would hunt down these people. They'd go to their houses and they would arrest them. And so much so that people have had fines. They've served jail time. They've had to go to court, which is not a cheap thing, especially in a grand theft auto case. And I believe that last year there was 3,300 of these cases or 3,300 of these filed instances that had occurred. Um, and so Hertz is my asshole of the week. That's going to do it for us here at the second mouse podcast. Thanks for listening, um, on our thoughts on the crisis in Ukraine. Do us a favor and share this podcast with your friends or those who might be interested in learning a little bit more, uh, from a different perspective of what's going on in Ukraine. Also, we're going to be sharing updates through our Instagram and social media platforms. Follow us on Second Mouse Podcast on Instagram. You can also catch us over on YouTube. And we're also streaming on all the major platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. But once again, folks, thank you so much. And we will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Okay, let's get me a rhythm. And then he says, and I'm not kidding, he goes, now clap. Please clap. Just clap for that, you stupid bastard. I need applause to live. Jokes, Mr. Jokey. Joke maker. Ha! <laughs> suck it, Jack Sparrow. <laughs>